Hi, this is Ann Doherty, and welcome to another episode of Current. On this week's podcast, we're joined by two of Illum's team members as we delve into a Twitter conversation at the intersection of COVID-19, HVAC systems and air circulation, and indoor air quality. So yes, there's going to be a ton of geeking out today. So we're going to jump right into it. Uh, Last month, uh, our team followed a tweet from none other than the renowned statistician Nate Silver, who inquired about whether or not people's behavior in states where it's currently too hot for people to want to be outdoors could be a predictor of COVID-19 spread. And I imagine many folks in our industry have paid attention to this. And one of the things that um, we found really interesting about this and Silver's assertion in particular is that medical research has pointed out that higher temperatures um, have indicated are associated rather with lower COVID-19 spread. But as temperatures begin to rise and we're heading indoors, we actually are seeing the opposite effect since people were less likely to stay outdoors. And and we're learning so much about the way that COVID-19 is spread through potentially through aerosols in the air and and possibly through our HVAC systems. So to delve into this a little more and shed a little light on this conversation, we have invited to our podcast, uh, the original geeks on Nate Silver's thread, um, Lisa LeBeau-Aubert, a managing director at Illum, and Rihanna Johnson, senior research analyst. Um, And so they're both joining us today. Lisa and Rihanna, thanks for joining our conversation today. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. We're excited. All right. Well, I'm excited to have you. Um, let's go ahead and jump right in and start to focus on our first question. So I don't need to tell you or anyone really listening to this that COVID-19 has been affecting people's lives in all sorts of unexpected ways. What inspired you to think about this particular topic today? So um, Nate Silver tweeted um, an output of a model that he ran looking at the relationship between cooling degree days and infection rates. And he said that he saw someone suggest cooling degree days as a proxy for states where it is currently too hot for people to want to be outdoors and found that it was predictive of COVID spread. So this got me thinking as somebody who lives in a COVID hotbed bed and a literal hotbed, Tucson, Arizona. Um, it was really interesting to me. And I was just started thinking like, okay, so what does it mean to live in a hot state and to be confined to your home? How can you keep your house cool enough when it's 110 degrees outside? How much money is that going to cost? And what types of societal ramifications are there going to be of the isolation and the being stuck in a hot box, essentially. So then I started thinking even more so, like, is forcing people to choose between which negative facet will affect your health, or I guess, what does it mean to force people to choose between which negative facet is going to affect your health most. So go outside and get this horrible disease or stay inside and get heat stroke or any other health-related impact based on heat. And so it just kind of like 
started spiraling and I slacked Lisa about it. And I was like, well, <laughs> what, what do you think? Um, so yeah, that's kind of where, where we started on this. And then we continued on to talk about all the different sort of circles related to this, um, where we started talking about affordability of air conditioning and um, some of the things that we do in our space, like weatherization and energy efficiency. And it just kept expanding. We realized um, this is a also a really hot topic right now. We just kept seeing news articles pop up about um, heat waves hitting all sorts of different parts of the country from New York to Arizona um, and what different states and jurisdictions and utilities are doing about that. So it just felt really um, prescient right now to sort of be thinking mm -hmm. about how this affects our work. Absolutely. And I, I love um, that this started with Nate Silver in particular <laughs> because obviously I imagine everyone at Illumin are huge fans of, of his. Um, but also, you're right. I mean, who who else besides HVAC contractors think about HVAC systems more than the consultants who are evaluating <laughs> programs? Right? Um, for perhaps people are implementing programs who are certainly outliers. So it's interesting to see something um, so uh, critical come into conversation with our industry in a way that we haven't really um, been asked to entertain it. So, it's, so it, in terms of having such a direct impact on public health. Now, I'm thinking about what Rihanna brought up, which was this sort of extreme weather. I, I don't need to tell anyone in the Tucson office that it's a quite hot in Arizona right now and other states like Nevada where we're hitting triple digits, which is, you know, pretty typical in the summer, but also um, more extreme than it has been in the past. And Wisconsin, um, Lisa, where you are, has also been hitting a major heat wave. You know, when we think about climate change and we're starting to see more extreme weather across the country and across the United States, um, how do we think about the ways in which this extreme weather might be complicating COVID-19 or this particular pandemic? Yeah, um, this is what Rihanna and I started to really <laughs> spiral and start thinking about because um, when we were first talking about this, we really felt like when we looked backwards at what the solutions were to extreme weather events and specifically heat waves, um, the solutions that tended to get talked about were going to cooling centers, families going to pools, splash pads, going to public spaces like libraries and museums, um, and frankly, checking on your neighbors a lot. You see that in, in news articles. And it felt like such um, a band-aid solution to this very big problem of people not being able to afford air conditioning, um, like a house of cards. And it feels like we're reconciling with the fact that we, as a country, have built lots of house of cards solutions to a lot of problems. And this is one um, that feels particularly fragile. So something like the pandemic comes in and knocks out a bunch of cards and suddenly we're all scrambling and realizing that people will die um, because these band-aids suddenly, these band-aid solutions aren't available anymore. It just feels really tragic uh, and something that, you know, we, you'd hope that we could have had the foresight to sort of think about ahead of time. And now, now we have to scramble to find a solution. Yeah. This is Rihanna. Um, I I think that this is 
kind of like shedding light on some of the holes in our infrastructure, in our ability to take care of each other, in our ability to be resilient. You know, it's it's only going to get hotter. And as like the number of days above 100 degrees increases with climate change, this just seems like a kind of like a slap in the face. Like, well, what the heck are we going to do when it gets this hot? And what are the people who can't afford air conditioning going to do? And what is the effect of all of us turning on our AC full blast at 75 degrees every day? What is What effect is that going to have on even furthering climate change? Um, so yeah, the house of cards is, it's been like blown down. <laughs> Do we even have a house of cards left? <laughs> no, I know, no pun intended, right, Rihanna, with that? I, it is really interesting to think about uh, just how ironic in some ways it is, and it would be ironic if, if, if there was any humor to be found in this, but that essentially the thing that we need to guard ourselves against heat waves are our HVAC systems, which we also understand could be continuing to spread this virus you know, through aerosols and other things that we're still trying to understand at this moment. And then, of course, brings forward who even gets to have that problem in the first place, who does have access to AC. Um, and as you mentioned, Lisa, there are all these, um, to keep using the term, house of card solutions that are sort of falling apart. So as we start to think about uh, air conditioning specifically, you know, COVID is really laying clear all of the inequities in our society. I mean, all of these um, things are being, to use Rihanna's term, blown away, and now we are seeing what we really have, what we're really dealing with. What is the impact of um, access to air conditioning on equity? How does that factor into this equity conversation? Yeah, so this is Rihanna. Um, I, I think that it's really important to think about this. And I think this is kind of where Lisa and I landed as we kept talking about this, like, okay, so, like you said, and there are all sorts of inequities being shown by COVID, and this is just another one that we're finding. And so air conditioning, as people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure know, is very expensive, and our bills in the summer in Tucson, you know, double or triple, like it is expensive to cool your house, and it is expensive to cool your house when it is 110 degrees outside, and the sun is just beating down on your home. And so we also can't leave. There isn't respite to go outside because it's 110 degrees outside. And so we are stuck in our homes and need to stay cool. So systematically disenfranchised populations are experiencing this even more so. Um, their homes are less likely to be well insulated or weatherized so it makes them inefficient or expensive to cool and that's if they have air conditioning in the first place um, the energy burden that they are facing is already so much higher so they are pay paying a larger percent of their paychecks on energy than somebody who's making more money and that is if they currently still have a job because this is also you know the unemployment rate is so high right now that people who may have been able to pay maybe can't. Um, some people, as I said, may not even have air conditioning in the first place. They may have fans. They may have wall units that aren't very good. They may have swamp coolers or evaporative cooling like we do in the Southwest, which is 
only effective if it's not humid. So in the later parts of the summer, it's just not even really a good method of cooling. Um, and then these systematically disenfranchised populations often live in areas that are more susceptible to heat and urban heat island effects. So they're not mere green spaces, natural or human made, that can provide some of these cooling benefits just by walking by a body of water or a park. And so as I was thinking about this, I was like, does Tucson even have very many green spaces? Like we're in pretty brown desert, but it does make a really big difference to be near green and these populations often live in very uh, cement-filled, asphalt-filled spaces, and it is that much hotter in those areas. And then, I mean, this list just can go on and on, but these populations are also more likely to have health issues and maybe less likely to be taken seriously by doctors. So they are already at risk for being sick, and having respiratory issues like asthma, and now they're being, um, those health issues are being exacerbated by heat. So, yeah. And I'll, I'll, Rihanna covered this really well. I'll just add, I read a really interesting study by the University of Southern California that in Southern California, poverty was actually a better predictor of whether or not a household had access to air conditioning than their climate zone. So from whether people lived, you know, near the ocean or they lived in the desert or they lived in the mountains, poverty indicated whether or not they had access to air conditioning in their home. And that, that's just having it, as Rihanna made the, the really good point, there are homes that uh, still don't even have an AC in it. It's not just about being able to afford it. Some homes simply don't have it. I think nationwide it's about 13% of homes um, and only about 60 to 65 have central air. As Rihanna pointed out, um, many, many people have, have room air conditioners. So this is a two-sided card, not to use the card metaphor again, but it's, it's whether people have it and then whether they can afford to use it. And those two things on top of all the other inequities Rihanna talked about compound upon each other when we're in a crisis like a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and, and not to mention the the underlying or perhaps overarching crisis of climate change. I mean, we um, had a wonderful podcast. I think it went out last week. I'm trying to remember with um, Yasmin Ansari, and uh, the piece that she brought forward that really struck me was that more people die from extreme heat events than they do from dramatic natural disasters that we are used to. Um, associating with climate change as these sort of very uh, pronounced and episodic dramatic events, whereas extreme heat is in fact more lethal and something that we will be continuing to face as temperatures continue to arise. Um, and then obviously layer on that, um, all of the things that you both just outlined so well and so eloquently um, related to who has access to um, mitigate that those increasing temperatures or the ability to mitigate them. No, That's okay. Um, go, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to add, and that um, to that, I also I read in that same article. I think that it's really hard to track heat-related deaths because the people who are mm -hmm. affected by heat-related heat illnesses are also the people who are often chronically ill or elderly, and so it's even hard to get our hands around a number of people that are affected. But we know for certain. Um, I think in Maricopa County, it was 200 people in 2018 that died over the summer. Um, 
from heat-related illnesses that we could confirm. So we, we know the number is probably higher than that. Mm -hmm. This is so reminiscent, too, of early days COVID when we were trying mm -hmm. to get our arms around what was the actual cause of death given uh, the comorbidity of COVID-19 and any number of underlying right. conditions and diseases. Um, and we, we'll learn so much, unfortunately, on the other end of this, but it, you know, we're still trying to grapple with it. As we um, think about what we do as a company, as I mentioned, uh, there are a few people who think about HVAC systems and heating and cooling than, more than we do, uh, and those that we serve, specifically utility-funded uh, resource uh, program managers. And um, as we think about sources like um, YHEAP and shutoff bands, how can we think about um, these offerings and these policies um, with respect to all of the things that we've described in terms of addressing COVID-19 and some of the inequities that we've discussed? Yeah. Um, so I think our industry is prepared to think about these things. Um, and it already kind of has some infrastructure so that we're able to, you know, kind of hit the ground running when we can. So like you mentioned, and um, LIHEAP and weatherization. So we can address some of the issues that I had mentioned previously. So we can make homes tighter. We can make them better sealed so that when they are cooled or heated, they can actually keep that temperature inside. We can also go and ensure that a, an air conditioner is running efficiently. So we can go and we can clean it, we can tune it up, we can make sure there's a train going by. Um, so, so we have the infrastructure to be able to do things like this. And then there's also income eligible programs that aren't often mandated to be cost effective. So they lack some of the more stringent saving requirements that other EE programs have which means that we can address the need of people who need help more, um, I guess, without as many constraints, which is a good thing. So, and then, like you said, there's shutoff protection policies in place in many of these states for both heat and cold extreme temperatures. Um, and many of them predate COVID and many states have enacted them at the start of COVID so that there was protection through the summer. Um, so it helps people at least stay powered when temperatures are too extreme. And then finally, there are life dollars that can help with fuel payments. And more recently, it was extended to cooling so that people can apply for these dollars to help them pay for their um, cooling in the summer. But I think it's important to think about these things like, are they like public pools? Are they band-aids? And is there more that we as an industry can be doing to help these people and to make sure that those non-program participants that we so often talk about are actually able to access the resources that we have? LIHEAP may be very helpful, but it's expensive in terms of time to get access to LIHEAP dollars. You have to wait in line. You have to go to an office and potentially expose yourself to COVID to sign up for it. And so are there other things that we can be doing, building upon the infrastructure that we have in place as an industry to help address some of these issues? And I think Rihanna touched on this, but um 
there are limits to some of the things that we, the tools that we currently have. So Rihanna touched on shutoff bans or moratoriums and those are short-term solutions. Um, and I am really grateful to know that I think the majority of the country right now, like two thirds of the country is covered by a, a moratorium on, on the utility shutting off their electricity. But that means about a third of the country is not covered by that right now. Uh, and there was a study done by the uh, NAACP that found that, to tie back to your, your earlier question, and that utility shutoffs impacted black communities uh, more intensely than other communities. So tying back to that idea of, of equity and also thinking about what happens when that ban is finally lifted, those bills don't go away. Customers are often, there's, there's very rarely loan, loan forgiveness because this is essentially a loan that you're getting. Um, you know, are people going to come out of this summer in debt, indebted to their utility? What does this mean long term for those communities? Is it still um, going to set them back? And so to Rihanna's point of thinking about longer term solutions there, um, you know, there's a, a lot that we do in our industry, um, but maybe this is the time that we need to start thinking outside of the box. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, you all have said so much. I'm almost struggling to pick up on a, a single thread to um, move the conversation along, but I think that's precisely the point, right? These things are so deeply interconnected that they're inherently challenging and difficult to remedy short of um, dramatic and very universal solutions like stimulus packages or um, basic incomes uh, that might start to chip away at some of these some of these things. Now, um, we, as, as those of you who are listening know, are a team of researchers and uh, data scientists and ethnographers and engineers, and we are often working to sort of puzzle our way through challenges in the industry. Um, when we think about um, the pandemic and the sort of uncertainty that I touched on earlier as to whether or not HVAC systems might actually be playing a role in, in spreading um, COVID, um, how might we um, lend our voices or our thinking to this challenge? Um, what could we do to help people understand this problem? Yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> We're, we have such a unique intersection in our industry, which is why I love working in our industry, I really do. Um, to your point, Anne, we have social researchers and ethnographers and data scientists and tech experts and engineers. Um, so I know in talking to some of our engineer colleagues, they've been getting a lot of questions about emerging tech right now. So thinking about things like UV sanitation, which uh, it sounds like we haven't talked about for a long time, suddenly we're talking about it again is something that people are thinking about in our industry of, of a potential solution to meet the needs of our, our customers right now. And that there's also been a ton of talk about ventilation, of course, and a lot of uncertainty around the role of HVAC systems of ventilation in either spreading or preventing the virus. Mm -hmm. um, we know though that it, uh, right now, we do, we're learning every week, every week the, the, our level of knowledge changes, but we know that it's pretty unsafe to be in a, an enclosed internal space with other people. And so I think as a social, social researcher myself, you know, and other people who are working in the evaluation space or in the research space here, we're getting questions from our clients about what 
what we're going to learn about customer behavior and energy use during this time. Uh, and we don't have answers yet, but I think starting now, starting two months ago, we've all been starting to think about what questions can we include in our evaluation surveys to start asking customers about their, you know, bean counting things like their occupancy and um, other things that have changed, but also their per perception about um, how hard it's been to pay their energy bill or um, how they've changed their energy use and what their most, their highest need is during this time. I think we have this really great opportunity um, to take on the research that we're already planning to do to really understand how some of these things are connected. I think Lisa covered it. Okay. You know, um, Lisa, you've also calling forward some of the conversations that we had earlier in a, a, a webinar, actually, when we were looking at public health and, and the home. And uh, one of the things that sort of came forward, I think Liz Kelly brought this forward, was this idea of um, the home suddenly being unclear as to whether or not it is safe or whether it's a forced safe space and what it means to be forced to be in one's home or to take respite in one's home and as the information around um, you know the role of HVAC systems in um, safety I think those feelings may continue to change as we're being told to they go outdoors with our loved ones rather than being indoors with them for example um, you know if we were to think about this uh, and sit with us a little more with respect to our, uh, our industry. So uh, thinking about uh, the energy industry, specifically energy efficiency and, um, and sort of clean energy initiatives, what are the short or long-term mandates you think we need to be striving for given all of your research in this area? Um, I think short-term we should advocate for or help our uh, utility clients and partners ensure that shutoff protection policies are in place in all of the country, not just in two thirds of the country. And while those are problematic because people may end up accruing lots of debt, um, it does help right now when people may be facing extreme heat. And in the winter, as you know, we may be having this conversation again in about Wisconsin when it's negative 20 degrees, you know, these extreme temperature events need to, people need help during these extreme temperature events. Um, and I also think that we need to make sure that information about LIHEAP and LIHEAP eligibilities, the newer, um, cooling dollars that LIHEAP can provide, we need to make sure that that information is uh, better distributed so that people know that they can take advantage of this. And so um, figuring out where people are getting information, these, the people who would benefit most from these policies, from these more governmental solutions, where do those people get information? Is it through their community food bank? Um, is it through other more local organizations? Is it in their electricity bill? You know, here's information on how to get help. Um, and then also, I think as programs get up and running, again, and weatherization is a possibility and contractors can go into people's homes, ensuring that those who are most vulnerable have access to the programs 
um, I think is really important. And I mean, that that's a question that we're always asking ourselves and our industry is now starting to think about more so pre-COVID. And I think it's now more than ever, <laughs> far more important to be thinking about this. Yeah, I wanna go back to something you said, Anne, because I feel this really acutely that um, when I look at a problem like this, it starts to feel so big and discouraging that um, it can make you wanna give up <laughs> and it can make you feel mm -hmm. like your small piece of the puzzle doesn't contribute. But as Rihanna and I talked more and more about this, um, I started to tell myself that if there was an easy solution to any of these problems, they would have already been solved. Uh, and the solution is not to just give up um, but to try to become less siloed. There's obviously many facets of this and we're, our industry is one of them. The energy efficiency industry, you know, through weatherization, through affordability, um, through uh, uh, equity and how we serve rate payers, this is all work we've all been doing. And that is a piece of the puzzle and it's an important piece. The more coordinated we can be in um, solving the problem, the better, but, um, but that's how I get through the day <laughs> to not feel really despondent about these, these sorts of things. But I think to Rihanna's point about some tangential things, you know, I, I think this got touched on in the public health webinar that you all did, but thinking about uh, on the program planning side about non-energy benefits, continuing to think about health benefits as we think about um, program designs and cost effectiveness and things like that, getting that leverage um, to think about this broader picture and reducing defaults on bills and, the, and those sorts of benefits, um, just getting more traction there feels like that is also really important to keep thinking about how we as an industry can sort of help move this down, down the train tracks. Yeah, absolutely. And finding ways to, make, to really capitalize on this moment and um, move past some of these entrenched ways of thinking about the benefits and value of what we do and moving towards, as you said, sort of um, more comprehensive and global models for valuing the, what, what it is that we are providing inherently. Um, you all have given me so much to think about and it's um, just, again, uh, there's so many ways to come at this problem and it's really interesting to sit with you both and, and to think through it. Um, one of the things that has recently emerged just in the past week, two weeks now, I think, um, although, who knows? Time time keeps passing. It's unclear how long how how much time has passed since this happened. But um, Biden um, recently released his plan for climate, which had a considerable focus on building retrofits, weatherization, and I think um, that to please our team or you know the U.S. But also was really um, something we were quite happy about uh, equity. Um, can you talk a bit about? Um, how the, his plan ties into what we're doing or the, what we've been discussing? Yeah, um, this reading his plan made me think back to um, when I was in the industry eight, nine years ago and our funding was a thing um, because we saw this huge influx of dollars towards weatherization um, that went towards funding um, low income programs and, and, and um, weatherizing under homes in underfunded communities. Uh, I think it like tripled the amount of homes that were getting weatherized. Um, and I recently read, I think ACEEE put out an article that something like 2% of homes eligible for weatherization 
get weatherized in a given year, um, which is just really shockingly small. So I was really, really happy to see another um, plan at the federal level that sort of tackled some of these big issues. Um, and to have it called out so specifically this tie between climate change and health. So Biden had noted in his plan that he wanted to establish an Office of Climate Change and Health Equity uh, under HHS, which he wants to model after the Office of AIDS Research. So to have it called out and acknowledge so specifically that climate change is impacting people's health um, gave me a lot of hope that um, in the future, we might be able to tackle some of these problems more systematically at a federal level um, and have that trickle down to the state and local level. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's so important to have the um, that type of focus at the federal level, like it sets the bar for how states and municipalities are supposed to act. And, you know, if, if the federal level is the floor and then states have to do better than them and utilities have to start taking these things into consideration, it's, it's hugely impactful for how change will start to happen. And hopefully it's a signal to policymakers to regulators to people like us that there are more um, it, it, these these ideas are entwined they're not siloed like Lisa said and they should be entwined and we should be thinking about how to solve these problems how to access people who haven't been you know that 98% of homes that need to be weatherized how we can adequately access them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, there is one benefit to a crisis and it's understanding where we stand and knowing what we need to do to move forward. They can be quite focusing. Um, and so I, I do hope that there are um, glimmers of hope in Biden's plan and that we will have the opportunity to enact similar policies in the future at the federal level. Um, and there's also so much reassurance in our states too, in terms of the, their voices and the ways that they've been stepping forward on climate as well. And certainly have buoyed our industry for the past four years. So um, I feel optimistic in that way, I definitely do. Um, now, I, um, I think we've kind of come to the close of the majority of our questions that we had for you all. Is there anything that came forward for you um, in this discussion that you want to discuss or any closing remarks you'd like to make. And I'll start with you, Lisa, and then give you the opportunity, Rihanna. Well, I'll just go back to what I said that I do, um, as, as doom and gloom as some of this was and really hard to think about, and it's it's just feels really raw right now. We all are living this. We're all feeling this heightened sense of anxiety, right? And some of us have people in our close circle that we know are are affected by coronavirus personally and so it all feels really really personal and really tough right now i do still have hope um the there there is a light at the end of the tunnel you know this is a survival period we're all trying to survive through and growth is really hard and change is really hard and there's been a lot of that happening the past four months um, in lots of different ways. So I <laughs> I hope as a country we make it through this crisis with having learned some lessons and to Rihanna's point of 
being able to address these things more front end and more systematically because this may not be the only pandemic that we live through in our lifetime, which is crazy to think through, but climate change is affecting us in all sorts of ways. So um, having us start to think through these things and to your point, Anne, of having to be focused and forced to really think through these things, um, I think is a silver lining of some of the really tough things we've all been going through. Thank you. Rihanna, is there anything you'd like to add to what Lisa said? Yeah, I think kind of jumping off of that and then what you were saying, Anne, um, I think one of my favorite things about working in this industry is that we have such tangible uh, ways of looking at behavior change. You know, when does somebody go to their thermostat and turn it up? And we have the data to to know what happened. And then we can call them on the phone and ask, why did you turn it up on that day? And they say, oh, I had a dinner party. Um, and I think it's, I like being able to, to learn about that, what makes people tick. And um, at, at the same time, behavior change is incredibly difficult. All of us know who have ever tried to change a habit. Like it doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to us creatures. Um, and unfortunately, like you said, Anne, I think sometimes we need a crisis to react to and to really point out what was wrong that we all maybe knew and felt and saw, but it wasn't in our face. And now we can't turn away. Like the inequities are here, we see them and it's time to act. And I think this should be a call to action for us. And I'm excited that there are things that our industry is doing well and that our industry can continue to do. And so that's, you know, it makes me proud to be, to be here and to think about how we can help push the change. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I'm um, very grateful to be on this podcast with you too. And um, so grateful for you both and all of their thoughtful contributions, both to this, but to the work that we're trying to do at Illum and the, the many ways we've tried to have conversations about equity and benefits and, and thinking our ways around really complex problems. I just am so grateful for you. So you guys are also very much silver linings for me. So thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate you. And I'm excited to continue the conversation. I completely wish it were under different circumstances that we were all together and, you know, breathing the same air. But <laughs> I also feel confident we will be soon too. Soon, well, soon enough anyway. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, so Anne. Um, thank you again for joining us today. Current is brought to you by Illum's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. Take care. Be well, everyone. We'll talk to you next time.